Join me on my journey as I explore wealth in all areas of life. I'm your host, Mindy Kinnis, and this is The Lucrative Society. Welcome back, my friends, to another episode of The Lucrative Society. I am delighted to have my friend Michael Fishman with me here today. Michael, welcome to the show. Hi, Mindy. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. You are most welcome. I am excited that we we finally get to have this conversation. I know you've been on my list for quite a long time. I wanted to begin with just kind of the concept of this show. Myself, in my own life, I have had a lot of challenges with money and money mindset and all of this, which really inspired the creation of this show. I wanted to ask you about your wealth evolution. If you could just bring me back, like, where did you start? You know, like what was growing up for you like with money? And then lead me up until today and your thoughts on on money. Wow. <laughs> awesome. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't know if you announced it to your listeners, but we don't we like we didn't talk about this in advance. So this is this is kind of fun. We're on that. We're on the high wire, right? I like putting people on that. <laughs> <laughs> so I grew, I grew up in, in Queens in New York City in a two-bedroom apartment with my parents and my brother. My brother and I shared a bedroom. You know, I think by any description, I'm a, a modest environment. Um, there really wasn't a lot of discussion about money. I don't, I've never known what my parents earned, and to this day, I don't. I know how they live. I can see and experience how they live, and, and you know, as as their means increased, you know, having a, a second home or being able to eat out more. I mean, the kinds of things when I was a kid that you just know things are getting better. But uh, it was, a, I, I would say, a modest upbringing. Like I said, not a lot of discussion, just the experience of what was going on, which had a lot to do with scarcity, either real or, or perceived. And... Um, you know, went to, went to college. Uh, my parents paid for my university tuition, so I, I, you know, I didn't. I graduated without any student debt, and uh, I worked a summer job during college, really just because I wanted to. So that you know, it, it, obviously things got easier at that time, more so than for a lot of people. And then in my career, you know, always had a sense. I mean, and even as I started working in the early and mid eighties, I was reading money magazine and I had a sense of what, that it was important to save and compounded interest and mutual funds and to get my arms around the tools and the methods and the commitment that it would take to, to have that be a meaningful process and to have, um, you know, for, to, to have savings and, and also to, you know, over the years also, um, and, and we're friends and you've seen this, but I've made certain choices that some might have said were expensive or, you know, let's just say costly that, you know, sometimes you want to honor yourself. Sometimes you want to make a choice not to impress anybody else, but to honor or pamper or acknowledge yourself for a job well done or a lot of years of hard work or the fruition of a particular goal. Um, and so, you know, there have been times where I bought a luxurious car just because I, I expected to have return on investment on it just in my own mindset. Yeah. It just that I felt good that I accomplished it and it just was something that I allowed myself to do for me. 
So there's, I'm, I'm dancing around with the answer, but I, I hope that's a good kickoff. <laughs> so let's talk about your work now. Like, what are you doing that has allowed you some of those luxurious cars or whatever other choices that you've made? I'd love for my listener to know a little bit more about, about your work. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you. Well, I, I, I mean, principally two things. Um, Number one, an advisory practice, which I've had my entire life and, you know, in some different iterations, but um, I advise founders and depending on the size of the company, the founder and or their marketing lead. And the categories are almost always something to do with health, nutrition, food, supplements, apps, wearables, the new technology and health, diagnostics, home testing, telehealth, those kinds of things. And then I lead a founder community called Consumer Health Summit, which I created in 1994. That's an invitational group of founders who really work with not only prowess and business acumen, but also purpose and really deep heart, really deep calling to make the world a healthier and happier place. And also the kind of people that when they gather are really committed to the greater good and really are always wanting to help each other versus you know, get things from each other and come into our gatherings like a hunter, but much more like a contributor. So, so leading and curating that group and advising founders um, are the two principal things that I do. Would you be willing to share, and I get it that I'm sort of putting you on, a, on the spot by asking you this, but one of the things that I found so amazing with you was, was your work with Consumer Health Summit, because I remember at one point, this was just in the last couple of years, somebody had told us or Sean had told me that there were X number of years until, I don't remember if it was till it was even profitable or, or what you had done, but I was like, that is extraordinary. So I wonder if you could just share in as much detail as you'd like that growth. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll try to address what it is you're, you may be thinking of. Um, but the first uh, two or three years, it was a private dinner for maybe 15 or 20 people in the mid-90s. Um, well, here's the thing. The, the first 10 iterations, it was always invitation only, but the first 10 years, nobody paid. Because I was working for an agency, and so the agency sponsored it, paid for it. It was always Michael's thing. It was never branded with me, but I always put it together. And I always invited the people and I always led the event and so forth, led the gathering. Um, but the first 10 years, while it was invitation only, there was no charge to attend. But because it was so tightly curated and admission was only offered you know, to, to, to people that were a, culture, a business and a cultural fit for the group, it wasn't like people showed up for free and didn't care, right? right. They, they knew they were at something special. So the first two or three years was a dinner and then we moved into kind of a one, you know, like a one day gathering of, of speakers and programming, like from morning till the end of the afternoon. And we were probably in the 40 to 50 person range at that time. And there were many years where I thought 50 was like the absolute biggest this thing could ever get. Because <laughs> it's not a seminar, it's a discussion. Right. And you can't have a discussion with 500 people. At least I don't think you can. But, the, you know, these days with Zoom and breakouts, maybe. But um, so it became a one day and then it became a two day. And then at some point after 10 years, we started charging, which I think was $600 for the very first time we ever charged, which was probably in the like late 90s. 
and then it became, you know, people were clamoring for a second day. So we did two days. So anyway, fast forward, it, it went from New Jersey to Connecticut to Paradise Valley, Arizona. And we've, we've, we, you know, we've pivoted and elevated the experience in so many wonderful ways, not only in terms of the community, but in terms of the experience and the hospitality and the, and the venue. So what started as, a, as an invitational dinner for 15 or 20 people in 1994, various iterations. And you know, today we have a beautiful community, a high alumni rate, uh, a wonderful prestigious faculty, some of whom are recurring, that, you know, return year after year. Um, and you know, pretty well known that the, you know, it's a $10,000 investment to be there. And so, but as I say, and as you may have heard me say in the past, things are either valuable or they're expensive. It's one or the other, right? So if it's valuable, irrespective of the price, it meant the, the, the experience or the tangible return on investment was, was there, right? So you could pay $2,000 for an event and have it be a waste of time. Right. You could pay a multiple of 10,000. Many people charge way more than, than we do. And that, you know, and that's valuable. Um, so it just, it's, it's not about the number, it's just about the curation of the community and having a group of generous people that have not only the heart, but the ability to support each other. I love that. And it speaks volumes to you as well as the leader, as the visionary of that experience, taking this small event and turning it into something that is, is let's just say a lot bigger than that, <laughs> which is awesome. And by the way, I'm sorry, we, I mean, we, we, we do admit only 100 each year. So there is, I mean, I mentioned, you know, how do you have a conversation with 500 people before? I, I still don't know how you do that, but we do limit our admissions to 100. So, I've, you know, so we're, we're, we're able to facilitate, I'm able to foster and facilitate, uh, you know, beautiful discussions and that, and that intimacy and that connection that just, you know, is, is what, that type of gathering and others like it um, are really known for. Yeah, and you're able to maintain that at that level, which I think is awesome. So let's jump into the world of happiness. I'm looking at money and wealth and also happiness and saying, how can we bring all this stuff together? Sean and I used to joke all the time that there were a lot of wealthy people that we knew, or not necessarily wealthy, but they had a lot of money and they were miserable. And then the flip side was also true. People that were so filled with joy, but didn't have a lot of money. So we're like, how can we do both? Because I'm fairly certain that that is possible and probable with the right mentors, resources, et cetera. So for you in your life, what is happiness to you? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it just, it brings to mind so many quotes, you know, like happiness is an inside job, which I think is accurate. Yep. Um, you know, happiness isn't, you know, is, is not, is, is lo loving what you have, you know? Um, so there's, there's just so many people that have framed that and in many, and in many beautiful, valuable ways. I look, I, I think, I believe we can develop happiness to its truest and fullest expression and its fullest experience. And I think for every human being, the foundation of happiness, the foundation of the experience of happiness is anything good like joy I think starts with being able to unplug or remove any frame of victimization that we may have from prior years of our life 
Because if not, we're walking around with a frame or a self-assessment. And look, everybody has their stuff, right? We know that. I mean, you know, somebody's mother was five minutes late picking them up at school. That doesn't sound tragic, but for that person, that was, you know, that was meaningful. They made it mean something about them. And of course, there's other things that happen that are terrible and real violations. But whatever those things are for each person, it's important to remove any frame of victimization and really look at the event as an event and to strip away the meaning and the, and the negative self-assessment and the kinds of things that become a part of the blueprint of virtually our entire life or the lens in front of our eyes, whatever metaphor you like. It's your blueprint, it's the lenses on your eyes. It's, you know, Anais Nin said, we don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. So, you know, with respect to happiness, I think happiness, joy, all those wonderful experiences and feelings start with what I just described. And I think that's, that's the human race. That's the, you know, we need to override the factory settings called our brain. Yes. <laughs> And, and get, you know, and get, and get that degree of consciousness. And so, you know, once that happens, our creativity blossoms, our purpose blossoms, our, you know, our self-love can, you know, can develop over time. I don't think these are overnight phenomenon. Sometimes they are, but a lot of times it takes, you know, years to, to, you know, to, to acknowledge oneself, to fall in love with oneself after you've stopped blaming or, self or assessing yourself in a negative frame right so i think that's i think that's the foundation and then happiness just like success gets defined by the individual you know i mean for some people happiness is a is a concert or seeing art or hearing expression or being with somebody they love or being by themselves you can relate to that i know <laughs> what me <laughs> <laughs> you know out in the desert yep. or on a mountaintop, right? So I, I think that's different for every person, but it, you know, just getting, getting quiet, as my partner Elaine would say, and really experiencing what is within you unencumbered by that entire past that we hope never happens again, yeah. right? And then, you know, happiness and, and the other kinds of things that are wonderful begin to reveal themselves and begin to blossom. What are some of the specifics for you? I mean, you know, we joke about me being alone and being on a mountaintop, which is 100% true. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are some of the ways, like, where, when or where do you find yourself most happy? Um, definitely with, you know, with, with Elaine, with friends. Um, you know, sharing experiences, sharing uh, not only not only triumphs and successes, but challenges. Um, hearing and experiencing the self-expression of other people, whether that's through music or art. Um, you know, being the recipient of of self-expression. Mm. You know, words, music, art. You know, that to me is, you know, the real oxygen in many respects. Uh, is 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 creativity, art, and self-expression. Uh, you know, I just love I love that. I almost would add food to that because I know that you and I have shared many a really good quality meal. <laughs> <laughs> 
oftentimes and had that, you know, ability to converse and express and all that along with the food. So that would definitely be on my list. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm a, you know, we talked about like the money and the, and the core over the course of time, you know, and for me, there's also food over the course of time and not just an appreciation of fine food and the ability to, to have it, you know, the wherewithal to, to sometimes go out and pay for it, but, or, or more than sometimes, you know, just emotional attachments to food, you know, and, you know, feeling particular emotions, good, you know, you know, some pleasant, some not pleasant, and how those emotions relate to the, the you know, eating and the, and the kinds of food that, I, let's say, I would reach for the time of day, like, why reach for something sweet? Why eat at midnight? Why do these various things, which you know, are less, are less than ideal. So, um, it, you know, there's, I think everybody, I certainly have a, a food journey, um, which, uh, you know, which, which I'm working on all the time. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So Michael, you came to mind recently for me because I was teaching a class on boundaries and somebody in the class asked a question and the question was essentially about integrity and he was saying okay if i have stated something whatever whatever that is and then maybe however long later i find that maybe that's not the best thing for me what do i do because i did state that so i want to be in integrity but in the context of this boundary class, I was also talking about, you know, not tolerating people's poor behavior and things like that. So this guy was like, what do I do? And you came to mind because I know there have been, and we've had conversations about this, there have been situations in your life where there was that struggle between the integrity of what you stood for and then also of what you knew you deserved. And I wondered, and you don't have to go into any specific if you don't want to, although I welcome you to if you choose to, how did you come to terms with that inner struggle of integrity, like what you had said versus holding a boundary? Well, it's a wonderful question. Um, look, certain matters of integrity are black and white, like keeping your word. You know, if I say I'll be there at two o'clock and I'm there at two o five, we it, it, may, it might might be tragic, might not be, but it you know that's a break of integrity, especially if I didn't tell you in advance that there was any chance of a delay. You know, if I you know if I say I'll do something and I don't do it, that's a breach. If I say I won't do it and I do do it, that's a breach. Then there's an area of integrity which would come under the heading of being true to yourself. Yeah. That's different than a factual breach of time or, an, or a particular act or a particular behavior. So being true to yourself is, you know, and look, you could say, well, I'm being true to myself when I, you know, knock people off their bicycle. Well, that's not a great thing to, to do, right? So there's, you know, there's, there's stuff that you could do to be true to yourself that's just plain out wrong. But you can appreciate, I know, that there's, you know, under the heading of be true to yourself, there's a lot of gray. Yeah. And so when you make a, and stop me anytime I'm not answering the question, but when you do make a promise or make a commitment, there can be a time 
when that no longer serves you. And look, there might not be anything egregious about it. It might just not serve you any longer, or there could be something egregious like that. You know, there's a party or a person that's dishonoring you in some way. Right. So, um, you know, and I've, been, I, I've, you know, without specific details, but I've been in situations, as you know, where I've given my word and over time that agreement turned into something that felt nourishing at the beginning and, and turned into a gross disservice to me. At which point it, it's being true to yourself, it's honoring yourself and actually loving yourself to communicate that like the discontinuation of that agreement or that commitment or whatever, you know, whatever action or behavior you promise to maintain, it's then over. So you don't maintain commitments to your own significant detriment over long. I mean, look, people and their relationships, they committed at the beginning and at some point it became, it, it, it wasn't right anymore. It wasn't the right thing. So, um, is that helpful? It is. And I, I want to go even just a little bit deeper because I think that you have an answer based on your experiences that other people might be seeking. And that is, and let's just use a, a hypothetical example. Let's say somebody has committed in a marriage to, you know, till death do us part. And then maybe there's some abuse in that marriage. So then the person has this inner struggle of like, this is what I said. And I said that with integrity, but to your point, that's also not clearly not serving that person because they're being abused, which, you know, nobody would say that's a good thing. So how, how did you or how would one come to terms with that inner struggle? And how do you know when it's black and white or when it's gray? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I look there. The test is different for every person. You know, the, the criteria, would be different for every person. But I think in general, I mean, look, I mean, here's, a, here's just a, a, something that most people can locate themselves inside of. When loving another person is, tan, you know, when loving someone is tantamount to not loving yourself, mm. that's a relationship with a really a gross imbalance of energy or integrity or how, you know, however you would say it. Um, but the ability to look at oneself in the mirror and be proud of one's choices, you know, in every area, you know, that your choices are excellent, that your choices are honoring you when you're, you know, you could choose, you're, you know, you're choosing a car is one thing, choosing a person is another, right? you know, and so if you've made a choice of a person, whether that's intimate, whether that's business, whether that's partnership, whatever, that relationship has to has to honor you as long as it lasts, um, and and when it doesn't, in whatever manner, and once again, it it could be egregious or it could just be a matter of a of two people can drift, right? There might not be anything quote unquote wrong, you know. For who you know, and and I think like I said, I think most people can locate their life in this discussion in some way some connection to, to, to another person. And, you know, it can be either be an affirmation of a relationship that you discontinued and maybe still have some lingering guilt or negative feelings about, or it could be about a relationship that's still in place that no longer serves you. I think that's hugely helpful. So 
thank you for that. I hope so, thank you. Yeah, so there's a four part question that I ask all of our guests. I think you know what this is because you've heard this show before. <laughs> it's called HERB, H-E-R-B. And the H, I would like to just take you through each part. The H is habits. What are some of your personal specific habits that if we were to implement them as someone listening to you, we may be able to achieve some of the things that you can achieve? Mm -hmm. Well, just, I mean, a, a couple that are specific, like take, take supplements. <laughs> Think, you know, get someone to help you choose the right ones, right? But, um, you know, use, you know, use supplements in your health routine, your health regimen. Avoid gluten, dairy, and, and sugar and processed foods. Err on the side of generosity. Mm, I love that. Like, I, I recently decided that, um, you know, if I get a coffee or, you know, something in a shop, no matter what, it costs the minimum tip is two dollars so it's a three dollar coffee it's a plus two dollars right because that's a human being that that took time and effort and and maybe even their purpose to be of service to you and it doesn't break you and it acknowledges that human being so i think you know and there's a hundred ways you could err on the side of generosity and it's not always about it's mostly not about money it's about being a you know a generous human being and, and, and caring and, and being giving of oneself. So I just, I, I think that's, I think that's a habit. I would um, say so, yeah. Yeah. So those would be a few. I love that. One of the things that, that Sean and I always used to do and now I've continued doing is when I go through the drive through at Starbucks, I say, Hey, put on the person behind me, you know, on my tab. And it's really kind of cute because a lot of times the, the cashier will like, especially if it's maybe a bigger order, like not just a coffee, it's maybe, maybe they had a sandwich too. And they're like, Oh, well, it'll be, you know, $14. I'm like, that's okay. <laughs> just put, put it on there anyway, but it's, it's super cute. So I love, I love that. Thank you for that. Uh, the, other, the other thing is, you know, whether it's a tip, like, a, let's say a tip for a, a valet lady or gentleman who's parking your car, whatever, if you don't have the small bill, not their fault. Right. If it's a five or a 10 or a 20, that's the tip. It's never zero. I love that. Thank you. Thank you for being a model of that. So from the H to the E, E stands for environment. How do you set up your environment for your, your best work, your best creativity, your best productivity? You know, what comes in or doesn't come into your environment? Yeah. Well, I, I mix it up a little bit because I'm fortunate enough to live in Scottsdale, Arizona, which is, you know, among other things, a resort town. So there are beautiful resorts with open air lounges and just beautiful places to sit and work. And, and it's peaceful and it's, you know, generally quiet and not generally crowded, especially during the hotter months. So I really have the luxury, uh, you know, how people sometimes put on Facebook, like, this is my office this week, and <laughs> you're looking at the ocean. So I have, you know, I, that's a beautiful thing about where I live. So I, I, I really, I mix it up. So when I pull out each morning, I just kind of give it a moment's thought of like five or six options, and I choose one. And so, and, you know, and with the, with um, you know, when I'm doing video meetings or, you know, meetings, you know, Zoom or Skype or those sorts of things, those, t I find those tend not to work in those public environments for lots of obvious reasons. 
Um, so, you know, I, I, I have a home office and I can work with books behind me or, or you know, on video or, or, or a beautiful piece of art or, you know, I have a couple of choices um, in my home environment as well. Nice. And I just, you know, that I'm still celebrating your move to Scottsdale because Sean and I pushed hard for that <laughs> for a long time. When I met you, you were still on the East Coast and we were both very excited when you headed our direction. That was awesome. Well, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm carrying the torch because I'm now, I'm now the uh, chief recruiter. <laughs> for, for I love Scott's. it. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and why not? You know, like it's such a great, great place. So the R in herb stands for resources. And one of the things that I like most about anybody that I meet is when somebody, they meet me and then they give me books. And you did that. So I was like, I already adore this guy. I don't know anything about him, but he's already top of my list because books are one of my favorite things on the planet. So resources could be books, but they could be coaches, mentors, programs, courses, whatever else. What are some of the resources that have really developed you into who you are and that you would recommend to others? Well, there, there, are, there, are, there are a few books, but I, and I'm happy to name a few, but um, what, I, what I really, uh, you know, really cherish and value the most are quite a few individuals that, I, you know, that I'm blessed and grateful to have you know, in what I would call my inner circle and just really dear friends. You know, the kind of people you can call at three in the morning or say, like, I need a thousand dollars or and it'd be like, no questions. You know, I don't think I've ever done either of those things, but I could. Right. <laughs> right. Um, so, so, you know, just great people, great, you know, relationships, I think, are, are the real wealth. Not because they lead to financial abundance, which they do, but because they are so much more meaningful than you know than anything to me and also um groups you know i'm not i'm not in many groups but um many people know i'm in joe polish's group and also leading and standing in front of my own group i mean that's you know that's that's an education and a nourishing experience to me as well you know i don't take the, i don't take anything for granted and certainly not the ability to stand in front of a room full of rock stars and dignitaries and just be knocked out so, um, you know, the, the fact that I have a group doesn't make me think I'm better or, or and certainly never take it for granted. So that, you know, the group that I lead, Consumer Health Summit and Genius Network and, you know, just other informal gatherings. You know, there's a wonderful author and educator and pretty well-known guy in New York named Ramit Sethi. And when I lived in New York, he and I hosted a dinner series for two years. And so, you know, we, there was no agenda. We would split the bill every time. In 24 months, we did 22 dinners. Nice. And at the end of the first year, we invited the first, the first, the first year's guests, we invited up to a party at the end of the first year. And then at the end of the second year, we invited all two years of guests to a party. And then we put a bow on top and we looked at each other. I said, we said, we think we're done. And we were done with it. But it was a moment in time, you know. So there's, there's just so many special things that you can not only belong to in with respect to people, but also create situations for yourself that are not only nourishing to you, but to everybody that participates. And so that, you know, in terms of resources, for me, you know, people would be number one, you know, if I could recommend, you know, three books, 
would yeah, be please do. You Can Heal Your Life by Louise Hay. 100%, yes. Um, Setting the Table by Danny Meyer, um, the subtitle of which is The Transforming Power of Hospitality in Business, Any Business, and The Culture Code by Dr. Clotaire Rapai. Mm. Awesome. Thank you for that. You're I mean, welcome. You know, I'm always like, which books are you going <laughs> to? You know, I wouldn't have let you not recommend some books. So I appreciate that. I, I haven't read as many, you know, a lot of people talk about the hundreds and thousands of books that they've read. I'm not in that club at all. That's okay. You know? And sometimes I've, you know, it feels, I feel a little uncertain about that, but you know, I have some books that have just made a massive difference in my thinking and in my relationships. And so those would be three. Yeah. And those are the ones that I, I want to know about. So awesome. So the B in herb stands for beliefs. What are some of your core beliefs that allow you to see the world as you do or allow you the success that you've had at anything? What are some of the core beliefs that make you who you are? Another wonderful question. Thank you. Um, well, I, I, um, it's funny, you know, uh, the astronomer Neil Tyson recently shared a quote that was said by Edgar Mitchell, who was an astronaut for the United States Air Force, and I don't remember what year, probably in the 70s, and said something to the effect of when you go into space and look back at the Earth, you don't see borders, you don't see divisions, you don't see any of these sorts of artificial constructs that are all you know, made by humans. And when I, you know, when I go, when I'm on an airplane, even though I'm not as high as the astronauts are, I, tr I remember that and I look down and, tr and just think about that. So I think for me, you know, in terms of a belief, I mean, to the extent possible, I think we all live on, in one home called the Earth. And it's important to, to safeguard that, um, not only for ourselves, but for the people and the animals that will follow us. I also think what goes around comes around. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I believe in karma. I mean, I'm very science oriented. It's, you know, in many respects, like if you can't show me in a lab or prove it or, you know, like it's in, a, in a scientific method, it's hard for me to embrace. But there are things that I do embrace that are, that are just really areas of faith. And, and karma and this just the connectedness of all human beings um, would be, you know, a few of those. Yeah. Nice. I love that. Now, I also ask every guest to define wealth, your personal definition of wealth. And you said relationships are the real wealth. And I wonder if you can expand on that or add anything to that in terms of what is your personal definition of wealth? Hmm. Well, it, look, it, if we really look at what most people associate with wealth, which, which I do too, you know, not exclusively, but partly and, and significantly, it's money. You know, money and wealth are, in that respect, peace of mind, security, you know, the, the wherewithal to, to reach for things that actually cost money. I mean, um, you know, to have experiences that, you know, so, I mean, the world is a big, beautiful place, but it's not free. <laughs> Even just to go to other parts of the, I mean, it doesn't cost anything to stand in another part of the world and look at that ocean or look at that mountain, but it costs money to get there. 
<laughs> right, good point. Right, so there's a lot of things in the world that are free, but even moving around requires resources. You know, and look, in many respects, and I forget who said it, I will always credit, but if I can remember, but um, you know, wealth in many respects is, is loving what you have. And, and I, I actually think that loving what you have gives you more ability to create more. When you're dissatisfied with what you have, it, you know, I think there's something called just like a healthy, dis, this is like a healthy, you know, restlessness, I think, right? Yeah. And, you know, healthy restlessness maybe is a decent definition of the word ambition, right? I, don't, I, think, I think it can be healthy to say, I love what I have and, I'm, and now this is my new game and I'm committed to this new level of whatever. But, I, but I, you know, in many respects, wealth and happiness, I think, are related, you know, to marry two words that you asked me about. So, you know, what wealth is, is, is financial wherewithal, it's, it's wealth of relationships, and it's also the full cup that you have in relationship to yourself. That's, what, that's how I would say it right now. <laughs> Later or tomorrow, it might be different. Well, I think that's fantastic, you know, especially in that when you were talking about the ambition and coming from a place of joy about that or, or happiness or, or fulfillment within that, you know, if there wasn't that further looking ahead, there would be no growth. You know, it's yes, being happy with what we have now, but also choosing to get uncomfortable again and go into that growth stage. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, well, and I never, I never said the term healthy restlessness before, but I, I actually kind of like it. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of do too. I think it's a good one. So Michael, you have been and are tremendously helpful to me you were to Sean just in our in our business sense you're you're a brilliant guy in branding and marketing and just just the way you think about things so i would love to have my audience get to know you more if they wanted to do that and they were interested in in what you're up to where would you like them to go where would you like to send them yeah yeah well thank you for uh, for a wonderful question uh, well, what you know, whether they're listening now or 20 years from now, uh, you know, I, I'm sure uh, you know my website's michaelfishmanconsulting.com, and for my invitational community, uh, my founder community is consumerhealthsummit.com. You know, Twitter and Facebook. I mean, I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm pretty easy to find, and I'm very responsive. <laughs> um, so those those would be the two best places to uh, to have a look. Perfect. And for the listener, all those links will be available at lucra.com in the transcript. So you can just go there for easy access to Michael Fishman. Michael, I just want to thank you for not only your time right now, but just your friendship over the many, many, many years. You were one of the first of Sean's friends that I met a long time ago. <laughs> we ended up traveling sort of together a long time, like really early on in our relationship. And um, you've always just been a great, a great blessing and, you know, a, a true shoulder to lean on and just like an ear to listen. So I just want to send appreciation your way and most especially for this time today. Well, look, it's always, it's always been uh, not only my pleasure and my honor, but a gift to me to, you know, for our friendship and, and just the ability to be of any degree of support. So it, it always has been and always will be an honor. And this was a fun, super cool visit. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
(laughs) You're welcome. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to subscribe to The Lucrative Society on iTunes. And please leave a review of the podcast. Visit lucra.com for transcripts and resources or to become a member of The Lucrative Society, where I coach purpose-based entrepreneurs on business, mindset, and heartset. Lucra, where wealth equals well-being.